back doors, out through the back doors. If you want to open up with me to Deuteronomy chapter 2, that's where we find our text here this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 2, starting right in verse 1. Then we turned back and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea, as the Lord had directed me. For a long time we made our way around the hill country of Sair. Then the Lord said to me, You have made your way around this hill country long enough. Now turn north. Give the people these orders. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the descendants of Esau, who live in Sair. They will be afraid of you, but be very careful. Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot upon. I have given Esau the hill country of Sair as his own. You are to pay them in silver for the food you eat and the water that you drink. The Lord your God has blessed you in the works of your hands. He has washed over your journey through this vast desert. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you and you have not lacked anything. So we went on past our brothers, the descendants of Esau who live in Sair. We turned from the Arabah road which comes up from Elath and Izion Geber and traveled along the desert road of Moab. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war. For I will not give you any part of their land. I have given R to the descendants of Lot as a possession. The Emites used to live there, a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. Like the Anakites, they too were considered Rephites, but the Moabites called them Emites. Horites used to live in Seir, but the descendants of Esau drove them out. They destroyed the Horites from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel did in the land the Lord gave them as their possession. And the Lord said, Now get up and cross the Zered Valley. So we crossed the valley. Thirty-eight years passed from the time we left Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the Zered Valley. By then that entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. The Lord's hand was against them until he had completely eliminated them from the camp. Now when the last from among the fighting men from among the people had died, the Lord said to me, Today you are to pass by the region of Moab at Ar. When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war, for I will not give you possession of any of the land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. The word of the Lord, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who has revealed yourself in history and in time, through your spirit, through your word, ultimately through Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we pray now that as you have given us your word, we pray that you would give us open hearts to receive it. We pray, Father God, that you would use your word to build and to grow faith in our lives. We pray that you would fix our attention upon your still small voice, whether it whispers sweetly or whether it thunders like lightning. We pray, Lord God, that you would make your will clear to us and that you would change and transform us that we would be people who would display your glory to this world around us. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. 
Well, as you may be familiar, we're picking up with the nation of Israel after a long journey. Four decades they've been traveling through the wilderness, and now they stand at the brink ready to journey forth into the promised land that God has, has given them by promise. And, and before they take this, this great step of faith into the unknown, God is directing their attention back upon the past so they can find strength and confidence in his past workings to kind of give them fuel and courage and hope as they march forward. And so there, there's three, three principal theological themes we're going to look at here in this text this morning, and then three very practical applications that spring forth from them. First, first idea is that God is sovereign over the nations, and He is the Lord of history. You know, if you've ever taken a Western Civ class, you sit there and you study the, the rise and the fall of nations, and, and you can almost figure it all out. You look and you look and you see how there are these economic forces that are at work and you know, certain people get wealthy, other people don't get wealthy, classes get oppressed, and eventually you know, there's the unruly masses you know, begging and burgeoning for change. Or you read about you know, political rivalries and rival houses or dynastic rulers getting into conflicts and pushing for war so that they can supplant their adversary. You read about, you know, religious groups arguing perhaps or vying for power and how they come into conflict. And as we study history and we see the rise and the fall of nations, it's entirely too easy to conclude that it's simply a human affair, a matter of chance, and that that's how things go to the way of the world. And yet, as we see this text this morning, God speaking through Moses is trying to make it manifestly clear to us that He and He alone causes the rising and the fall of nations, and that ultimately everything is in His hand. He he directs His attention to the people of Israel, and He says, you know what, you're going to walk by the nation of Edom, I want you to leave them alone. Don't attack them. You're going to walk by the nation of Moab, I want you to leave them alone. Don't attack them. You're going to walk by the nation of Ammon, I want you to leave them alone and don't attack them. All these people groups you're going to walk by, Don't harass them, don't attack them, don't contend with them. You walk on by. And by way of anticipation for next week, I think one of the things you're going to see is the irony of this. The irony of this, without giving too much away, is that God walks, tells them to walk past these three nations, but he commands them to attack the two nations that are more powerful and more stronger. He says, yeah, those those nations, Ammon, Edom, Moab, they were all weaker than the nations of Og and Sihon. But you're going to leave those three nations alone. I have plans for them. But you're going to go attack those guys. Not a little bit of irony there that you'll see next week. But what an implicit reminder. As God is walking with this nation of Israel, this nation that he's about to take into the promised land, and that are really going to be set up as a nation, He's trying to make it very clear that he and he alone is the one that causes the rising and the fall of nations. Notice verse 19 again. And when you approach Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. The Ammonites may be the ones occupying there. 
They may be the ones living there, but ultimately, the country belongs to God. He has the right and the power to take it away from Ammon should he choose. He has the right and power to let Ammon keep it should he choose. If anyone else is going to get it, it's because he removes it and gives it to them. Again and again, you see this theme here in these texts. I have plans and purposes. You can't have it unless I give it to you. And as we follow the nation of Israel again, about to kind of go over the edge into the brink of the great unknown, full of wonder and possibility, fear, unanswered questions, God is trying to remind them that he and he alone is over the nations and the Lord of history. Notice how he says that don't even attack them, don't even try to harass them, don't even try to provoke them, I won't give it to you. Don't, don't, you know, put on your war paint. Don't try to, you know, buckle on your swords. Don't try, don't even think about trying to provoke them to a fight so that they attack you first. And then you can say, well, God, they started it like a five-year-old. Don't even try to put them in the position where you antagonize them so much that they attack and you defend. Because you know what? You're going to lose. I don't care if you outnumber them 5,001. You're going to lose. Because I've given it to them. It does not belong to you. You can't have it. I have given it to these people. It's the message he's trying to get across. Like them, it's easy for us to, to live with a fearful anticipation of the events of the world and the rising and the fall of nations. And we're afraid what happens if this one particular ruler gets a hand of this one particular weapon. We're afraid of what's going to happen if the world turns upside down. And we just like them, and yet we get that with the backdrop of God is in control. That's why I think we have this, this little weird narration between verses 10 to 12 of this kind of history of who's controlled Sire. Yeah, this group had it, and then they beat up this group, and then this group had it, and they beat up that group, and then this group had it, and they beat up this group. But you know what? Edom has it because I chose to give it to the descendants of Esau. Nations rise and fall like the going forth of the wind because of the hand of God exerted. And we get afraid of individual rulers, and yet it was Solomon himself in the midst of a great dynasty who said, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Proverbs 2.1 No matter where our country finds itself a week from now or a year from now, we are given cause to remember that God is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over individuals. No one rises or falls apart from his clear, direct movement. He is on the throne and will he ever be? Second point, God is sure to provide. Folks, down on verse 6 here in the text. Speaking of the Edomites, he says, You shall purchase food from them for money that you may eat, and you also shall buy water from them that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in the work of your hands. Think about that for a minute. The Israelites have traveled through the desert for 40 years. 40 years they've been wandering on this nation of people. You know, I don't know, I mean, some scholars range from hundreds of thousands up to 2 million people that they say are traveling together through the wilderness. Forty years they go by, they, lack food. they do not lack food, they do not lack water, they do not lack clothing. But at the end of 40 years, God can say to this nation of people, yeah, um, you're going to need some food, and this is who you're going to buy it from. With the implicit understanding that they have the ability to do what he's commanding them to do. Think about that. 
where are they going to get the kind of resources to buy food and drink for their entire nation as God expects them to do? Put your hand there. Flip back with me to the book of Exodus. Flip back to Exodus, just a couple books. We can go back to Exodus chapter 12. Down in verse 35. Exodus 12. Down in verse 35. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had commanded them. For they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Forty years ago, God foresaw you're going to need an awful lot of money to buy food and drink. And 40 years before the Israelites even had the sense of the need, God gave them what they were going to need, preparing them for the future. I don't know about you, but I tend to think that gold and silver probably weren't too valuable for the uh, Israelites as they were going through the desert. I don't know. I I kind of just think, you know, gold and silver, it's only valuable, what? Because we declare it's valuable. And we borrow with it and we trade with it. And yet, if you're just this one country and you're walking through the desert, carrying silver and gold on your back. Yeah, it's valuable in the real world. But to them right then, it probably didn't have the same measure of value. But here you fast forward 40 years, and all of a sudden they have this remarkable need that God had prepared them a generation ago for. He is the God that provides. He's making sure they have exactly what they need, even though they never would have anticipated the need in times past. God has taken care of them. As they, as they are about to journey into this great unknown before them, Moses is also making sure they remember God is the one who provides. You ever do that? As you're faced in a moment before you of fear and uncertainty over the provision of God, do you ever step back and consider the past providence that he exerted on your behalf? Do you ever consider the ways in which he gave you, maybe not what you wanted, but what you needed? Do you ever consider the ways in which in the past God just demonstrated his presence by giving you exactly what you needed to get through? It's exactly the kind of idea Moses is trying to do right now to prepare his people for what's before them. Third idea, God is near. Notice the intimacy of God present in these texts. Then we journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea as the Lord told me. Later on, now rise and go over the brook Zered. Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. God is right there. He's not saying head north and that's it. Hey, head south by southwest. He's saying, you know what, I want you to go and you're going to cross the brook Zered right here. Right there. That's where you're going to cross it. Hey, you know what, you're going to travel forth and you're going to cross into this new country, Moab, at Ar. Right here is where you're going to move into the new land. God is right there. He is right there in midst the mundane aspects of their travel plans and their route. He's not just telling them where to go. He's telling them exactly how they're going to get there. And as they are traveling in this unforgiving environment, 
Perhaps watching as things did not turn out exactly as like they thought 40 years ago when they left Egypt. He wants it to be clear. He's with them. Focusing on verse 7. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. As they look forward to the future, Moses is trying to remind them that God has been with them in the past. He was with them every step of the way. He guided their paths in the past. He will so in the future. Sometimes today we have this idea that it would have been so much better for us if we were alive then. Man, if, if we were just alive with the Israelites and, and we had the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by the day and we just saw God's presence manifested moving along and if we, could just, we saw it and we, we felt it, we would have so much more faith. We would be so much more faithful. We would know He is there. He is near us. He is guiding and directing us. And you look, but then we, we, we must look at, at how they turned out and ask ourselves, do we really think that we're any better? Then we must ask ourselves if God has not demonstrated His nearness to us today in a more profound way. In that God says, every one of you, who confesses your sins and comes to me, and I will make you my son or my daughter. I will indwell you with my spirit. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Nothing can take you out of my hand. I am Emmanuel, God, with you. Do we really have so much less? Do we not have so much more of the nearness of God if we will simply see it and seize it? He's near. Moses is leaving the Israelites with no doubt about the sovereignty of God over the nations, about God's willingness and ability to provide, and about God's intimacy with them in the depths of every situation, even if it is a wandering in the wilderness. But what does that mean for us? Here today. Well, the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, as we see the character of God revealed in these verses, we can make a number of implications ourselves about His continuance of these things. But there are three things I want to sit on briefly. One is that we need to embrace our background and shed our guilt associated with it. You know, in this room, we've got people from a lot of different geographical backgrounds. Some of you grew up your whole lives in Hingham. Some come from the south side of Boston, some from Dorchester. We've got some people in here who grew up in the Midwest, some from the Gold Coast in Connecticut, some from the south, some from a different country entirely around the world. We come from all over the map, all over the world, right? And I've noticed this, this funny thing that many of us do. We look, at, again, at our geographical background, not, not really our family of origin, I mean our geographical background, and we walk away feeling guilt and shame about it frustration over it. Some of us walk around and maybe we grew up in an area or a neighborhood that was what you'd call a rough neighborhood where we got involved in a rough crowd or maybe where we didn't have a lot of opportunities afforded to us. And I've talked to people that that were in that background and they they just just didn't have a lot of opportunities. And then they they get to know people that that had a lot of opportunities and that perhaps are eloquent and perhaps did go to a, a different caliber of school. And they walk around feeling like less than a person. 
as if, as if somehow they're worse. They, they, they feel a sense of shame because of their background and where they grew up and what they didn't have. And then there are others of us who walk around with what I think of as a, a guilt over privilege. A guilt of, well, I grew up in a nice town and I grew up in a nice neighborhood and I, and I had all kinds of opportunities. And so then when I turn on CNN and I see about the plight of this world, I feel guilty that I had all these things while these other people didn't. And, and I don't want to talk about it. And I don't want to talk about what I did when I was young because I'm afraid people are going to be jealous and be mad at me. And yet this God over the nations, the Lord of history, is the same God about whom the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Did you catch that? God decides exactly where you're going to live and how long you are going to live there. It's not your parents' choice. It's not a matter of chance or of circumstance. It was the direct hand of God exerted. And so some of us need to shed this shame or this guilt associated with our background, with what we had, what we didn't have, because God gave us exactly what he needed us to have, what he wanted us to have in order to accomplish his purpose. And some of us need to embrace the notion, hard though it may be, that whether we had much or little, many opportunities or few, we had exactly what he wanted us to have for the path ahead. And we need to pray for the grace and the insight to see what the gift was in the midst of that background. And we need to embrace it as the gift of God that it is. Second application. We need to rejoice over closed doors. You know, there are a lot more places here that God tells the Israelites they can't go than places they can go. Do you notice that? You can't go here. You can't go there. You can't go there. This is where you're going to go. This is how you're going to get there. It's a three-to-one ratio. That doesn't sound good to me. I don't like those odds. Three-to-one. And for us, closed doors are not exactly a happy circumstance. We take closed doors as a letdown. We take closed doors as a disappointment. We take closed doors as, as something that says something about us. We get discouraged when doors close. And yet, I think that closed doors should be the kind of thing that if God is the God of providence, he proclaims himself to be, closed doors should make us rejoice. Because every door that closes means that we're one step closer to the door that God is going to open and that he's going to beckon us to walk through. Every disappointment, every failure is one step closer to the moment where God is going to usher us in to the exact place he has prepared for us. And not Paul. How many times will God not let Paul do what he wants to do? We read in Acts and we see how Paul is like, I want to go up to Asia. And God's like, no, you're not. You can want to go to Asia all you want. You can go to Macedonia. There you go, Paul. There you go. We read in the opening of Romans, Paul said to the church, I've wanted to come to you guys for so long, but I was prevented. Paul had closed doors across his entire life after conversion. And somehow as Christians, we only focus on what happened when he went through the open door and we're like, whoo, he planted a church. He preached the gospel. People were converted. We somehow easily pass over that all the times God redirected his route up and down and sideways. And the way he rejoiced in what God led him to. 
We we see relational doors close. We see job opportunity doors close. And instead of getting disappointed, we should rejoice. I don't think any of us would say that looking for a job is a fun process. If there is anyone that would say, I love looking for a job, well, praise God. (laughs) You're a special person. (laughs) You can have your own Sunday school class. I mean, three and a half years ago, my wife and I, you know, we were in the midst of, looking, of a job search that brought us here. And good grief, it's just draining. And whether you're, whether you're without work and looking for a job or you, or you have a job and you're looking for a job, and you're just, you're just desperate to go there, wherever there is sometimes, right? And you become emotionally invested. As I was in the search, you know, you, you send out your resume, and I think I'd send out my resume to about 30 different churches. And, and that's not it. Then, you know, and, you know, they start getting back to you and they say, okay, well, good. Now um, we want you to fill out this, this questionnaire answering all these questions. I had so many churches that I'd fill out a 20-page questionnaire to, answering question after question after question about what they wanted. And it's really good when they call you back and they say, thanks, but no thanks. And you're like, I've lost four hours of my life. I'll never get back. And then sometimes, you know, you go on an interview and interview and you walk away thinking it went really well. And they call back and they say, thanks, but no thanks. And, you're sitting, and they never tell you why. You're like, did I forget to put on my deodorant that morning? What did I do? Did I, did I not use a mint? What happened? And the funny thing was, every time a church rejected me, I thanked God. I said, this is so great. The fact that they said no means that's not where God wants me. The fact that that door closed means that I'm one step closer to being exactly where God wants me to be. And hallelujah, because I don't know what I want. I'm darn sure I don't know what's best for me. I'm certainly sure I don't know how God wants to use me. I'm still that way. I've got to be honest with you. But God closed every door he didn't want me to go through. And then he opened up one. I was like, that's what, that's what I want it to be. I want to be rejected. Because I, I know. There's a quotable. Why I don't go to church. My pastor said. Because that means I'm one step closer to being in the center of God's will. And fearful though that may, be, that may be, it's exactly where I want to be. We need to rejoice over closed doors. Third point, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Um, when I, was, I, was, I put myself to college working as a pharmacy technician. One night, we're there. I'm in, you know, there in the pharmacy. Phone call rings. I, I answer the phone. This guy's asking about a prescription. Yeah, yeah, we've got it. Okay. I'll be there in 15 minutes. And, and he says these words, which I'll never forget. And you're going to about to see what. He says, I'll be coming in. I'm wearing a long, dark robe, and I have a long, black beard. Don't be afraid. Click. <laughs> I, sat, I sat and stared at the phone for about a minute and a half. And then I told my boss, and we were terrified. <laughs> I don't care what he said. We had, he had told us just enough information for our imaginations to run wild. And I regretted watching every horror movie I had ever watched. <laughs> and we're terrified. And wouldn't you know then, and again, the irony of ironies, 15 minutes passes and a man begins walking down the aisle with a long black robe and a long black beard and a big cross around his chest. And the whole decking's out of an Orthodox priest. And I sat there thinking, this guy that we just thought was going to assassinate us all (laughs) has the smile of a father of God. 
the Israelites knew just enough about the people that got into the land that God was taking them for their imaginations to run wild and for them to be deathly afraid and have every reason from a human perspective to be deathly afraid. And yet God's saying, I am the Lord of history. Don't be afraid. Over 300 times in the scriptures, God tells his people, don't be afraid. Don't be. We're told not to be afraid because not a sparrow falls to the ground without God knowing and allowing it. And he says, brothers and sisters, you are much more valuable than many sparrows. We don't know what the future holds. We know we see this great unknown. Our imaginations can go crazy. And the God of providence says, don't be afraid. I am the God who causes the rising and fall of the nations. I am the God who provides you what you need, even if you don't know you need it when I give it to you. I am the God who is going to be close to you regardless of your circumstances. Don't be afraid. It was uh, late one Sunday night, and a, uh, two different people on two different sides of town were kind of puttering around their houses getting ready for the week ahead thinking about where they need to go, what they need to do, what was going to happen there, kind of imagining the week ahead. and So just kind of getting things ready in their house, straightening up a little bit. And they have very similar circumstances initially, though they're separated by the city they live in. They, they each kind of go and, and they clean up their house and, and they're, they come across these old high school and college yearbooks. And maybe your experience has been a little bit like theirs when you, you're not intending on looking at it, but you come across this old yearbook and like a magnet, you're just drawn to it at least for a few seconds. And so each of them separately, they, they take out these books and they begin looking at these yearbooks and, you know, looking at the signatures and the names and the, the pictures with the really bad hair. And, and they start remembering about the dances they went to, about the people they talked about, about the sports teams they played on and the, 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 the highs, the lows, the joys, the tears. And then they start thinking about the interval of time between where they are now and where they were then, and everything that's happened. And they start thinking about where they thought they were going to be 20 years ago, what they thought they were going to be doing 20 years ago, what they thought their life would look like as they graduated triumphantly and threw their caps in the air. And all of a sudden, the story begins to change dramatically for both of them and diverge. The man sitting there, all he sees is shattered hopes and dreams. He sees the roadblocks that got in the way of him doing what he really wanted to do. He, he remembers all the pain of failed relationships that he's gone through. He remembers the hurt and the heartache, the disappointment. He'd give anything to go back to that day and be as optimistic as he was there 20 years ago. And now his, his sorrow is turning very quickly into bitterness and regret. And, and, and he goes to put the books back on the shelf, and he can't even put them back on the shelf because he's so angry that so much happened that he hates and that so much got in the way from him living the kind of life he intended. And he just throws the books in the trash because he can't even look at them. He can't even think about it. Meanwhile, the woman, she, she too is sitting there thinking and and a tear comes to her eye and she begins to admit that, yes, she never would have, thought, would have thought she would have been where she is today, 20 years ago. She never would have chosen 20 years ago to be where she is today. And her life, too, has been filled with its share of regrets 
and disappointments. And yet amidst that backdrop, she sees drops of grace falling in the scene. The way God has not always given her what she's wanted, but he's given her what what she's needed. The way in which he's used the painful circumstances in her life for her to be a blessing for other people. The way he's changed the course of her life and the good fruit that has come from it. Her circumstances haven't changed, but she can see the way in which she was blessed by God and the way in which she was made to be a blessing to others. And taking the books with a tear and a smile at the same time, she puts them back on the shelf and just says, thank you through stuttering breath. What's the difference between those two people? One rested in a God of circumstance and his own understanding, and one rested in a God of providence who guides, empowers, feeds, and directs us every step of our lives. Which person do you want to be? Let's pray. Father God, we know that you indeed are a God of providence, but Lord, we know that you know that we struggle to live that way. And so, Father, we come before you in need of your help, in need of your strength. We pray, God, that you'd open our eyes to see your providence exerted in our lives. We pray that you'd enable us to see your blessings, that you'd enable us to feel your presence, that you'd fill us with hope and courage, that you are the God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that you are with us always on the throne. In Jesus' name. Amen.